Chapter 1 of The End of the Tether This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Peter Dan The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad Chapter 1 For a long time after the course of the steamer Sofala had been altered for the land, the low, swampy coast had retained its appearance of a mere smudge of darkness beyond a belt of glitter. The sun-rays seemed to fall violently upon the calm sea, seemed to shatter themselves upon an adamantine surface into sparkling dust, into a dazzling vapour of light that blinded the eye and wearied the brain with its unsteady brightness. Captain Wally did not look at it. When his serang, approaching the roomy cane-arm chair which he filled capably, had informed him in a low voice that the course was to be altered, he had risen at once and had remained on his feet, face forward, while the head of his ship swung through a quarter of a circle. He had not uttered a single word, not even the word, to steady the helm. It was the serang, an elderly, alert little Malay with a very dark skin, who murmured the order to the helmsman and then slowly Captain Wally sat down again in the armchair on the bridge and fixed his eyes on the deck between his feet. He could not hope to see anything new upon this lane of the sea. He had been on these coasts for the last three years. From Low Cape to Malantan the distance was fifty miles, six hours steaming for the old ship with the tide, or seven against. Then you steered straight for the land, and by and by three palms would appear on the sky, tall and slim, and with their dishevelled heads in a bunch as if in confidential criticism of the dark mangroves. The Safala would be headed towards the sombre strip of the coast, which, at a given moment, as the ship closed with it obliquely, would show several clean shining fractures, the brimful estuary of a river. Then on through a brown liquid, three parts water and one part black earth, on and on between the low shores, three parts black earth and one part brackish water, the Safala would plough her way upstream, as she had done once every month for these seven years or more, long before he was aware of her existence, long before he had ever thought of having anything to do with her and her invariable voyages. The old ship ought to have known the road better than her men, who had not been kept so long at it without a change, better than the faithful Serang whom he had brought over from his last ship to keep the captain's watch, better than he himself, who had been her captain for the last three years only. She could always be depended upon to make her courses. Her compasses were never out, she was no trouble at all to take about, as if her great age had given her knowledge, wisdom and steadiness. She made her landfalls to a degree of the bearing and almost to a minute of her allowed time. At any moment, as he sat on the bridge, without looking up, or lay sleepless in his bed, simply by reckoning the days and the hours he could tell where he was, the precise spot of the beat. He knew it well, too, this monotonous huckster's round up and down the straits. He knew its order and its sights and its people. Malacca, to begin with, in at daylight and out at dusk, to cross over with a rigid phosphorescent wake this highway of the Far East. Darkness and gleams on the water, 
clear stars on a black sky, perhaps the lights of a home steamer keeping her unswerving course in the middle, or maybe the elusive shadow of a native craft with her matte sails flitting by silently, and the lowland on the other side in sight at daylight. At noon the three palms of the next place of call up a sluggish river. The only white man residing there was a retired young sailor with whom he had become friendly in the course of many voyages. Sixty miles further on there was another place of call, a deep bay with only a couple of houses on the beach. And so on, in and out, picking up coastwise cargo here and there, and finishing with a hundred miles steady steaming through the maze of an archipelago of small islands, up to a large native town at the end of the beat. There was a three days rest for the old ship before he started her again in inverse order, seeing the same shores from another bearing hearing the same voices in the same places, back again to the Cephalus port of registry on the great highway to the east, where he would take up a berth nearly opposite the big stone pile of the harbour office till it was time to start again on the old round of 1,600 miles and 30 days. Not a very enterprising life, this, for Captain Wally. Henry Wally, otherwise Daredevil Harry, Wally of the Condor, a famous clipper in her day. No, not a very enterprising life for a man who had served famous firms, who had sailed famous ships, more than one or two of them his own, who had made famous passages, had been the pioneer of new routes and new trades, who had steered across the unsurveyed tracts of the South Seas and had seen the sunrise on uncharted islands. Fifty years at sea and forty out in the east, a pretty thorough apprenticeship, he used to remark smilingly, had made him honourably known to a generation of shipowners and merchants in all the ports from Bombay clear over to where the east merges into the west upon the coast of the two Americas. His fame remained writ not very large but plain enough on the Admiralty charts. Was there not somewhere between Australia and China a Wally Island and a Condor Reef? On that dangerous coral formation, the celebrated skipper had hung stranded for three days, her captain and crew throwing her cargo overboard with one hand and with the other, as it were, keeping off her a flotilla of savage war canoes. At that time, neither the island nor the reef had any official existence. Later, the officers of Her Majesty's steam vessel Fusilia, dispatched to make a survey of the route, recognised in the adoption of these two names the enterprise of the man and the solidity of the ship. Besides, as anyone who cares may see, the General Directory, Volume 2, page 410, begins the description of the Malatu or Wally Passage with the words, This advantageous route, first discovered in 1850 by Captain Wally in the ship Condor, etc., and ends by recommending it warmly to sailing vessels leaving the China ports for the south in the months from December to April, inclusive. This was the clearest gain he had out of life. Nothing could rob him of this kind of fame. The piercing of the isthmus of sewers like the breaking of a dam had let in upon the east a flood of new ships, new men, new methods of trade, it had changed the face of the eastern seas and the very spirit of their life, so that his early experiences meant nothing whatever to the new generation of seamen. In those bygone days he had handled many thousands of pounds of his employer's money and of his own. 
He had attended faithfully, as by law a shipmaster is expected to do, to the conflicting interests of owners, charterers and underwriters. He had never lost a ship or consented to a shady transaction, and he had lasted well, outlasting in the end the conditions that had gone to the making of his name. He had buried his wife in the Gulf of Pechili, had married off his daughter to the man of her unlucky choice, and had lost more than an ample competence in the crash of the notorious Travancore and Deccan Banking Corporation, whose downfall had shaken the East like an earthquake. And he was sixty-five years old. End of chapter one.